Uh, well, it is good to see everyone today. Uh, welcome to Church of the Lakes. Uh, I was over at Canal Fulton this morning. I enjoyed worshiping with Pastor Robbie and, and the people over there, but so thankful I came back to be with you. Tony, I love that last song we did, Brokenness Aside. Uh, we're kind of, uh, Alex picked that one out? Yes. Yeah, we'll say she did. That's kind of where we're going with our message today. Uh, but what, what a beautiful promise that the Lord will lay brokenness aside and make beautiful things uh, out of each and every one of us. Well, today we are kicking off a new series of messages entitled Getting Right with God. And in this series, we're going to begin by talking about our bent towards sin. Let, let that soak in for a second. Real pick-me-up conversation, right, on a Sunday morning. Uh, but in all honesty, even for those of us who have claimed a faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it, it doesn't mean we don't battle anymore with sin. Now, now, please don't mishear me. Prior to yielding our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us we were dead in our sins and trespasses. However, when we came to Christ in Jesus, we were cleansed of all unrighteousness and made spiritually alive. So we went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We even have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our future inheritance in heaven with our Lord. But that doesn't mean that temptations and the distractions of life go away. If anything, the devil's going to use everything and anything at his disposal to disrupt our relationship with our Lord and Savior. So the Christian life, if I could frame it this way, it's just a constant battle between saying no to the things of the world and saying yes to the things of God. It's smacking down really the desires of the flesh and then in its place cultivating the fruit of the Spirit within us. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone to a carnival or a fair and played that whack-a-mole arcade game? Right? Some of you have maybe played it. It's a game where these moles pop up randomly from these holes, and the mission is to whack the moles down as quick as you can before they go back into hiding. Whack-a-mole. So as you play this game, you realize that it's a lot like our battle with sin, right? Sin just keeps, like those moles, keeps popping up. Worldly desires keep popping up to entice us and lead us into temptation and into sin. Friends, these desires often distract us from our spiritual journey, from what life's really about, from our pursuit of being more like Jesus. It is our aim with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word to combat the intentions of our enemy. We need to get right with God. With God's help, we need to shake off the brokenness that oftentimes feels and seems so unshakable. So where did all this brokenness begin? Well, we got to go all the way back to the beginning of time, right? It began in the Garden of Eden. Uh, two people were at play here, Adam and Eve, uh, who interacted with the devil, who in that moment took the form of a serpent. So, so God gave human beings perfect paradise. We call that the Garden of Eden. He even told them, you have dominion over all the earth to subdue it. Uh, they had communion with God. The scriptures tell us they walked in the cool of the day with their creator. They had perfect union and love with one another. That should have been enough, right? That should have been enough. They had perfect freedom except for one stipulation. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, with that one stipulation, 
the devil found his window of opportunity, found a way to bring his kingdom of brokenness into a world that only knew God's kingdom of wholeness. Listen to how the story plays out in Genesis chapter 3, if you haven't read it uh, in recent weeks. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord had made. So he says to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the, uh, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Friends, from that moment on, I know it's a common story, it's a familiar story, but from that moment on, sin and brokenness entered into our existence and we have been struggling with it ever since. Again, even those of us who know Christ, who, who belong to the family of God, still struggle with this brokenness that's within us. And like that whack-a-mole game, right, we, we keep trying to hit it down when it creeps back up. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, wretched person that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, friends, we have our answer. Freedom from our brokenness and from sin is found in relationship with Jesus Christ. But we have our part to play in securing that freedom. What God calls upon us to do is, is to really change our loyalties from the world onto God. The Apostle John says that much in his letter to the early church. In 1 John 2, this is going to be our main text of focus today that I want to walk through with you. But listen to the charge the apostle gives his church. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So a group of first graders took a, a tour of a local hospital from one of the nurses. And at the end of the tour, one of the boys came up to the nurse and said, why are people so obsessed with washing their hands in this place? And the nurse kind of chuckled at him. And he said, well, it's for two reasons. One, they love to be healthy. And two, they hate germs. You know, in more than one area of life, believe it or not, love and hate can go together. So, so, so what does John mean when he says, stop loving the world? Does it mean that I can no longer enjoy pepperoni pizza or a chilled Diet Coke? Does it mean I can no longer go enjoy an afternoon at a baseball game during the week or a movie on the weekends with my family? This is not what John is saying when he says, stop loving the world. Friends, he's saying we are to hate the world. So, so world in the Bible uh, comes up in three different ways, in, in three different contexts. 
It refers to three different things. The first thing in the scriptures world refers to is simply planet earth. Isaiah 6 verse 3, the prophet says, the whole earth is full of God's glory. This isn't the world that John is referring to here in 1 John. Another way that the world is referenced is in regard to people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him does not perish but has eternal life. This is not the way John is referring to the world in his letter to the church. The third way, and this is the way John is using that, that particular term in, in his letter to the church, refers to the value systems and pursuits of life, hear this, that are contrary to the will and ways of God. That's the world John tells us to hate. The value systems and the pursuits of life that are in direct conflict or that are contrary to the will and ways of God. John admonishes the church, do not love the world. This is, again, not an outright rejection of everything in the world, but a call really to prioritize God and God things over worldly desires. Friends, the consequence to getting this wrong is really a risk of straying off path in regard to our faith and losing sight of God and, and what God intends for our lives. So, so if you were to look at verse 16 of this passage, I'm hoping some of you are starting to bring your Bible so you can take notes while you're, we're going through a message. But in verse 16, John characterizes the nature of worldly desires in three different categories. Talks about the desires of the flesh. Another word for desire you could translate as the lust. The lust of the flesh is one. The lust of the eyes is a second. And then the pride of life is a third. Let's talk about the lust of the flesh. Uh, the lust of the flesh are the desires of the physical body that leads to either overindulgence, gluttony, to addiction, or to sin. So in the Bible, lust is often used in regards to illicit sexual desires. However, that's kind of being a little myopic with the term in Scripture. The etymology of the Greek word that we get desire or lust out of just simply means to be hot after something or someone. To be fixated and focused on pursuing that something or someone at all costs. So really in any context... Lust is any sinful desire that is, again, contrary to the will or the ways of God. It could be a lusting after a woman or a man, but it could be the lusting after a car or after that new iPhone, right? Or, or maybe after a new pair of, of Air Jordans or, or maybe after a position or any number of things. That's what lust or desire means scripturally. The word flesh... What does that mean? The flesh, and, and, and the Apostle Paul talks about the flesh all the time, and what he's referring to is our human nature that is corrupted by sin. It's our broken human nature. So the lust of the flesh indicates all desires created or centered in our human nature without regard to the will of God. Friends, it is that which we're constantly fighting against. In life, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 talks about all the time. The things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. It's, he's warring with the, 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 the broken, uh, corrupted human nature of, of life. That's the lust of the flesh. Uh, the lust of the eyes, just in, in definition, stay with me. These are the enticements uh, that we see 
and that we then covet. Uh, some things we covet may be material possessions or, or anything that promises for us instant gratification. So in Scripture, the eye is the primary organ of perception, but it's often used as the primary avenue of temptation. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that the eye is the light of the body. And if the eye is unhealthy, guess what? The body is flooded with darkness. So the lust of the eyes describes someone who is so captivated by an outward show of materialism. It's like you see this new car, you must have it, right? You see the new iPhone, you must have it. You see that position at the office that is now open and available to you, you must have it. Now cars, clothes, dresses, phones are not in and of themselves sinful or evil. But the excessive desire to have it at all costs, regardless, that's what's sinful. An undue desire to have anything that is contrary to God's will is sinful. That's the, pride, or the lust of the eyes. What about the pride of life? The pride of life is the uncontrollable pursuit of status, of recognition, and of self-glorification. The pride of life often leads, uh, is often a life that is led in self-glorification instead of upward to, in glorification to God. It's the person patting themselves on the back all the time. Uh, it simply said it describes the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. Think in our American culture, we have a lot of arrogant spirits of self-sufficiency, right? Uh, the, the, the pride of life, it expresses the desire for recognition, for the applause, for the status, for, for an advantage in life. It is all about the ego. I've heard it said ego is an acronym for edging God out, right? The pride of life is all about edging God out. Uh, egotism is like the mere little littered walls of my barber shop that I go to every three to four weeks. You know, I go and sit in my chair, I look any, in any direction or behind me, guess what I see? My ugly mug, right? My face. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's egotism, it's the pride of life, it's, it's seeing I, 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 everywhere you go. Is this not Eve's issue in the Garden of Eden? And Adam's, for, for that matter? Let me read verse 6 over to you again. I'm, I'm going to categorize where these three issues arise in, in the story. When this woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, right? And that it was a delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. Listen, this just isn't Eve's issue and our issue. Do you know the devil attempted to entice Jesus with the same issues in the wilderness at the start of his ministry? For those of you who know the Bible, this, you know how the story goes. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, his cousin. And we're told immediately that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he fasted for, and prayed for 40 straight days. <laughs> Now, even though the prayer and fasting, I'm sure, made him spiritually strong, the lack of food for 40 days probably made him spiritually weak. So the devil found a window of opportunity to drive in and see if he could tempt Jesus to sin. 
How does he do it? There's three different temptations. The first temptation, the devil says, turn these stones into bread. And what is that? But to satisfy the lust of the flesh. When Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that, what does the devil do next? He shows him pictures of all the empires the world had ever seen. And he said, if you just bow down to me, this all will be yours. It's the lust of the eyes, right? Finally, Jesus was challenged to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple because if he did that, the angels of heaven would come down and swoop him up and, and land him to safely. And, and uh, if he did that, then the religious elite of the day would, would see it and they would, it would secure their adoration for him and it would satisfy the pride of life, that recognition. Friends, however, unlike Eve, unlike us, guess what? Jesus was able to resist loving the world and the things of the world. But how? How did he? You know, as someone, just to be transparent, as someone who has fallen victim to the world and the things of the world, the most convincing statement, I think, in John 2, verses 15 to 17 is this. When he makes this declaration, he says, the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. That's tough to hear, to be honest with you. Let me say it again. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. Friends, I have tried all week to find a way to soften that sentiment, to take the sting out of it, but I couldn't without changing John's intention. It's difficult to hear, but I think it's a sentiment that stings, and for some of us it needs to sting. In James' letter to the early church, the letter named after him, James, he takes that sting and digs it in a little deeper, and he twists it. When he says this, he says, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. I don't want to be told that I hate God, because that is never my intention with anything I do say or how I interact with people to hate God. However, when it comes to the Christian faith, guess what? Intentions don't matter near as much as action matters. So, so what are the telltale signs that you may be a lover of the world? And in a moment where you have to come to the Lord in repentance, it's not, you know, you know Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if. This isn't going to be that, but you might be a lover of the world if, okay? Here's the first one. You might be a lover of the world when the world or any object in it so engrosses your thoughts that it excludes serious reflection on the things of God, right? You might be a lover of the world if you're unwilling to part with the world when need be or to give it or anything up for God's purposes. You might be a lover of the world if you secretly grieve because you're not as blessed with every earthly convenience or delight that other people possess. Coveting, right? You might be a lover of the world when you pursue the world with greater zeal and enjoy it with higher pleasure than you do serving God or enjoying his favor. Does anyone need to be repentant today? I think I do. Let me ask a question to the married men out there. Do you remember when you asked your girlfriend to marry you? Are you probably a little nervous when you, you confessed your undying love for her and that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with her? And Instead of giving you a resounding yes, what if she said something like this? Yes, I'll marry you. Yes, I'll live with you. Yes, I'll work beside you. But you need to know right off the bat that I also love somebody else. 
So I'll marry you just as long as you let me love this other person. Man, how would you respond to her? You'd be a buffoon, right, if you married her? Now imagine how Jesus feels when we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray daily, but I'll do my best. But you need to remember, I also love the world. Ridiculous. Friends, you cannot expect God in heaven to be pleased with a divided loyalty or a divided love. It's either you love God or you love the world. Now, now please hear me. Every Christian has three great enemies in life. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Their combined power. Listen, it is impossible for us to overcome in our own strength. You do realize that, right? That's why we need God first and foremost in our life. That's why we have to stay rooted daily in his word and walk daily in step with God's spirit. That is the only way we can have victory over the flesh, over the world, and over the devil. John is teaching us that our relationship to the world must be one of opposition. I know we don't like to hear that because in America it's all about the status quo, but our relationship with the world as Christians must be one of opposition. Listen, friends, the world is opposed to Christ Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. That means if you are linked with Christ Jesus, guess what? The world is going to be opposed to you as well. So why is it important to move away from the world and toward God uh, in relationship with Jesus? Well, John tells us in verse 17. He says, and I quote, And the world and its desires are passing away. But for those who do the will of God, abide forever. Friends, the world systems has a built-in flaw. What is it? It's temporary. <laughs> it's already on the way out. You know that, right? God and his kingdom will be the only thing that endures forever. Uh, let me end with this illustration. I, I love it, and I hope you find it as profound as I did. Uh, there was a guy named Charles Dutton, who as a young man ended up committing a crime. He got convicted of manslaughter, spent seven years of his early adult years in prison. Well, while in prison, he, he had a knack for the theater. So he started training himself to be an actor. And after the theater, uh, or after prison, he ended up going in and becoming an a actor on Broadway. Started off with some uh, uh, little tiny roles in, in different musicals and plays and, and theaters. But he hit it big in the Broadway production, The Piano Player. Well, after his Broadway success, he, he was asked in an interview this question, how did you make that remarkable transition from prison life to Broadway? I love his answer. He said, unlike the other prisoners, I never decorated my cell because I was always wanting to be reminded that this place was temporary. Friends, Dutton never regarded his cell as his permanent home. Friends, the world is not our permanent home. Therefore, be careful about decorating your cell. Who or what are you loving today? Can I compel you to love God and not the world? Friends, the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's what John tells us. This refers to a life lived in alignment with God's purposes, which again leads to eternal life. So regarding application, how do you get there? First, assess your priorities. 
What or who is first in your life? Is it God or the world? Second, resist worldly desires. When the things of this world start tempting you, whack them away, <laughs> right? Prioritize faith and godly value. Third, live with eternity in mind. Friends, focus on what is eternal. Make spiritual investments into the future rather than investments for temporal worldly gains. But whoever does the will of the Father will endure forever. You think John would be saying, but God will endure forever. God will endure forever, but that's not what John is saying in, in verse 17. He's saying that the people who do God's will will endure forever, will live forever. Friends, listen, if we have God's eternal life in us via salvation through the cross, we're going to abide forever with God. Look, our lives have meaning, have value, and have purpose through all eternity because we are linked with the God of eternity. I'm here to tell you, friends, the world cannot give you meaning and hope and comfort, at least to the level you desire it and you seek it. There is no worldly comfort in the long run. Only heaven can give you heavenly comfort in the, in the world in which we live. Therefore, don't decorate your cell. Whack away the sin in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you and trust in Christ and Christ alone for the life that you desire, a life of deep satisfaction and joy. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that you would deliver us from ever loving this world or the things of this world and that you'd help us keep our affections lashed to our Savior, who bled and died on a cross for our sins, that we might not perish with the world and its lusts, but instead, so we might live forever and abide with you forever. God, help us, show us the right way to live, the Jesus way. And it's in his name we pray, amen.